Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Such an exciting day, isn't it? Oh, I love, I love the baptism. That is really why we exist, is to help people experience the life transformation of Jesus Christ. We've got a few minutes left, so I'm going to attempt to um, answer a very, very challenging question that y'all have asked me in the next few minutes or so. I'll, tr- I'll try to get you out of here at a decent hour here. Um, okay, so he- hearing these stories, right, of salvation, of, of baptism, it begs the question today that we're asking in our series, asking for a friend. All these people have had this encounter with Jesus, and it's changed their life, and it's you know changed the trajectory of their of their future and their eternal destiny. But what happens to those who never have the opportunity to know Jesus? What happens to those who lived upon this earth and never had a Christian missionary visit their remote village? If explicit faith in Jesus is the only means of salvation, then, man, aren't we privileged to live in a country where Jesus is so readily accessible? That's just not true of everybody on this planet. What happens to infants and the mentally incapable? Are they destined to hell because they're incapable of knowing salvation in Jesus? And then think about this. I'm, I'm never going to forget this time when this young man walked into my office. This is many years ago. I was working at a, as a pastor at a university in Minnesota, and this young man walks into my office, and he tells me um, his sister had just committed suicide. And she left a note saying how much she hated Jesus. She hated Jesus. She hated Jesus because her father, when she was a young child, would abuse her, whip her, beat her, um, strike her in the name of Jesus because he felt that she was demonic and he was casting demons out in Jesus' name. And so she hated Jesus. She hated the Jesus that she knew. And so he came and was like, is my, is my sister who hated Jesus going to be in heaven? That's what his concern was, right? And this, the sister who had died, is she going to be in heaven because she hated Jesus? It begs the question, what Jesus are we referring to, doesn't it? What Jesus must we believe in? And the answer to that question might seem obvious, but you need to understand that his sister had rejected the Jesus she was introduced to because every time that that Jesus came up, she remembered the scars upon her chest and her hands and her legs and her face. So the question is not just of the unhearing world. It's a problem of the American caricature of Jesus that so many within our our nation and culture have, have developed in their minds. So even though we live in a Jesus-centric culture, the vast majority of people are ignorant to who Jesus was and who Jesus is. What he said, what he did, why it matters. So is our community doomed because the church has done a really poor job at portraying who the biblical Jesus is? The question is, if Jesus is the only way to the Father, then what is the eternal destiny of those who are ignorant of him? And before we drum up theological answers with no heart, with no compassion... We need to ask some pastoral questions. Try to put yourself in the shoes of a counselor or the shoes of a pastor thinking through this. What do you say to the boy who sits down and asks you about the eternal destiny of his sister who has rejected the Jesus that she was introduced to because that Jesus was full of pain and hurt? What do you say to that young boy? What do you say to the grieving boy who lost his father who professed to be an atheist? What do you say to the weeping mom who recently lost her infant? 
What do you say to the parents whose son is mentally incapable of understanding and communicating salvific faith in Jesus? What do you say to these people regarding this very important question? If you believe God is love and God is compassionate and God is gracious and God cares, then this can't just be a theological issue. Even though this is a cloudy issue, the bottom line is this. God is just. God is love. God desires that no one should perish. And if God is just, then will he not do what he determines to be right? I mean, if you guys leave with anything this morning, just leave with that, okay? If I answer any other question, I'm, I might just muddy the water from here on out. Can we just, should we just end? Should we just end right now? Uh, I'm, I'm debating, honestly, doing that. Um, at the end... <laughs> okay. At the end of the day, the only thing we know for certain is that God is just, that God is love, and that God desires none to perish. We know that from Scripture. That's all we know at the end of the day. So don't judge me too harshly on what I've wrestled to the ground. Here's the thing about all of these conversations that we're having, right? Um, we can have different perspective on a lot of these and not agree, and that's okay, and we can still be friends. We've shown this image several times throughout this series already. We're going to continue to talk about these concentric circles in the middle are the die-on issues. These are the things that, like, these are the issues that I'm going to die on. I'm going to die on this hill. Like, there's no disagreement here. These are issues that we, as followers of Jesus, Orthodox Christianity, we're going to die on. But there's a ton of issues around the defend and debate side of things. We can have differing perspectives. We can have differing opinions. We can look at different scriptural verses. We can interpret them differently, and we can understand them differently. And then there's all those just issues that are fun to discuss, but they really don't have any pertinence. And this issue of the salvation of the ignorant, this is a defend and debate kind of issue. We can all look at different passages. We can come up with different conclusions. But in the end, we don't have to agree. We can still be friends. The church has not historically done a great job at this. But we can still be friends even if we come to different conclusions. Christ asks for unity, not uniformity when it comes to these discussions. He asked for unity, my friends. Let me say that again. There is a slide for it. Yes, thank you, Ethan. Christ asked for unity, not uniformity when it comes to these issues. Unity comes when we're willing to sacrifice for each other, forgive each other, serve alongside one another, commune with each other even when we disagree on these topics. And the spectrum of Christian thought on this issue in particular is this. There's universalism on one end. And there's restrictivism on the other. And then nestled in between them are inclusivism and post-mortem choice. Now here's the thing. Proponents of all four of these ideas look at verses like Ezekiel 18 and 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.4. And how God does not desire anyone to perish. He does not delight in the destruction of anyone, but he desires all. Every child born in some rural village in Yemen, right, who's never heard the name of Jesus, to every child who has a misconstrued idea of who Jesus is because... They only received a very, very hurtful, hate-filled Jesus. He desires all of them to be saved. Some people will say that if it's true that God is all-powerful, then everyone will be saved. That's universalism. But in order to establish a love relationship, God has given us free will, and he will not manipulate our free will, which means that some, unfortunately, will not be saved. And so we're going to reject universalism here. On the other end is restrictivism. This is the most conservative and traditional way of thinking about this topic. Because the children in Yemen never had an explicit knowledge of Jesus, well, they're going to die in their sin. 
It, it's not it's not the lack of the of the cure that is killing people. It's the fact that they are diseased, right? That's that's true of any disease. It's not the lack of the cure. It's the fact that you have a disease, and that's true of sin, right? The restrictivists would say that you die because you're a sinner, not because you didn't know Jesus, and so you're deserving the just punishment for your sin. That's restrictivism. But understand, when you think about this, that the responsibility of their salvation really then depends on on us in some ways, right? The missionaries, the people who are called to go out and to spread the good news to these people. We're not doing a good enough job reaching the world, and so we're filling hell with all these people who don't know about Jesus. And so in the end of the day, the onus of responsibility is on us. It's the same with your family. It's the same with your neighbors. Hell could be prevented for millions of people if you and me, the church, would just do a better job at representing Jesus if we just do a better job at telling the world about Jesus. But I don't really want to talk to my neighbor because he's kind of weird, you know, and so I don't want to tell him about Jesus. And so I'll just let him perish in hell. But really the onus of responsibility then is upon me. And then in the middle you have inclusivism and you have postmortem evangelization. Inclusivism would suggest, and C.S. Lewis, by the way, was an inclusivist, so if you hold inclusivism, you're a good company. Would suggest that you must know Jesus in order to be saved, but we must not know that we know him. Kind of confusing. They would say that God, okay, I'll say it again. Inclus- I'm speaking really fast here, I apologize. Inclusive was, inclusivism would suggest that we must know Jesus in order to be saved, but we must not know that we know him. They would say that God applies to some the blood of the Savior they were, for whatever reason, outside of their control, unable from knowing even though their hearts have been conditioned by intrinsic and general knowledge of a creator and God who loved them. They will be judged by the knowledge they did have, not by the knowledge they didn't have, in other words. And then the postmortem choice suggests um, that Jesus himself presents the gospel to everybody after they die, before the final judgment. Both of these views state, and you know this is very important, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only means of salvation. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way that we can be saved. Sinners are only made compatible with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They cannot do it on their own. If someone is saved, then it is through Jesus. That's very important. And what I have wrestled to the ground regarding this, again, you don't need to agree with me on this, right? This is a defend and discuss kind of issue. Uh, We don't need to agree. We can still be friends. What I have wrestled to the ground with this is the most middle of the two. Somewhere within those two ideas is where I have landed. Remember that just because it's where I've landed doesn't need to be where you have landed. If you have studied the scripture, if you have read the text, if you have wrestled with this issue, it does not need to be where you land. This series was designed to ask hard questions, and isn't it true that often hard questions come with messy answers? I think it's true. You're going to find that a lot as we move forward in this series and certainly the next series. Hard questions come with messy answers. So I briefly, briefly want to frame my viewpoint on this and then ask one simple question to conclude our time together. Here's what Peter wrote in his first letter. He says this. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. And so this is only natural. If Jesus suffered in death and still extended love and forgiveness in the midst of it, then we should expect our life not to be very comfortable, but we should, even in those moments where we are suffering and uncomfortable, we should still extend love and kindness and patience to those even who hate us. He continues, For if we have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. 
remember, sin, if you've been around, sin is about self-protection. It's about self-advancement. It's about self-promotion. Your willingness to lay down self-protection, self-promotion, self-advancement, it shows that sin is not mastering you anymore. When you choose not to be selfish anymore and you choose to self-sacrifice, that is an indication that sin is no longer your master, Peter is saying. So then you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. When we recognize sin, self-promotion for what it is, the source of death, selfishness equates to death. When we recognize that when we are selfish, It hurts and we hurt others when we recognize that selfishness leads to death. We set aside that pursuit and instead we are eager to chase after true, genuine life found in God. When this happens, your heart is turning around and you're conditioning your life towards the will and the love of God. So you have had enough in the past of evil evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. We wasted so much of our life in pursuit of all of these things that only lead us to death. They lead us nowhere, and in the end, did not make us more human. They only caused more pain. We heard story after story after story about how we chased after all these things, and it only caused chaos. They didn't make us more human. They didn't make us more genuine. They left us hollow, and they left us hopeless. Of course, Peter says, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. Maybe some of you experience that. You no longer want to hang out with that crowd who just gets drunk all the time. You want to go live a pure life or a holy life, and you want to seek out the life of Christ. And they're like, what are you doing? You're not cool anymore. Why aren't you hanging out with us, right? Of course, those who are still living that way are going to condemn you and slander you for leaving what you recognize as a lifeless pursuit. But remember, Peter says, that, you will, that they will have to face God, who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. Everybody, in other words, will have to stand before God and give account to the life that they have lived. Every single person will have to stand before God and give account for the life that they have lived. Here's where it gets interesting. That is why the good news was preached to those who are dead. Anybody ever read that before? It's in the Bible, friends. Peter said it. That is why the good news was preached to those who are dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the spirit. In other words, there is hope for everybody who has died. Even the raucous and riotous, even those who lived against God's will while on earth, even those who've never heard because the good news was never preached to them. Everyone, so that even though they suffer judgment of their death of their body, perhaps in the next life they will not have to suffer the judgment of the death of their spirit. This isn't second chance theology, by the way. This doesn't innate the the need for us to be great missionaries and to continue to to help our friends and our community understand um, the life and the abundant life of Jesus. And here's why. With every choice we make in this life, we are conditioning our hearts to be able to say to God, you are the one I love or I am the one I love. And that's a really, really important thing. We are conditioning ourselves to even have the capacity to accept the gospel, even in death when it's preached to us. And the reason this paradigm might be challenging to us is because for centuries, maybe a century, the the evangelical church has really bought into one model of the gospel. And it's a model that probably all of us have seen from time to time. And it's not a bad model. There's a lot of great things that come out of this model, but there are some challenges to it that I want to wrestle with for one quick second. With great intention in describing the gospel, someone a hundred years ago wrote down on a napkin while you know explaining the gospel to somebody. 
a man is standing on a cliff. You guys ever seen this before? There's sin in the middle. We can't cross that sin, but we're going to try with every effort we have, with every religious deed we do. We're trying, and we're going to run, and we're going to jump, and we're going to try to get to God. God is, that's symbolic, that Celtic knot is a classic Im- image of the Trinity, by the way. That's the symbol of God in this, right? So we're trying to get to God by our own efforts, but sin is separating us, and we just cannot get to God. And so what does God do out of his grace, out of his incredible mercy? He creates a bridge for us in the cross of Jesus Christ so that, hey, we can get across to where God is. A lot of great things about this model, a lot of wonderful things that are good and great. One of the challenges, though, is that it implies a stagnancy on our part in what sin is doing to us. Sin is stagnant in this. It's just it's a pool that we need to get over, but we can't. We're sinful and depraved, and we can't cross the divide by our own efforts. Yes, religion cannot save us, right? Our own good works, our own good efforts at trying to get across that, that pit cannot save us. But it doesn't show how sin is conditioning us. That sin is growing in us. Our sin nature grows within us. We get worse as people. We get hardened as people. And selfish actions and thoughts and words do in fact condition our hearts if we let them. We not only drift towards selfishness, we grow into selfish beings. And so I think there's a better better model. And in its simpler form, it just looks like a circle with an arrow pointing to God. It looks like a compass. And in this model, right, um, we're designed to face due north. That's how God designed us. But in our sin, we have just turned around from God. The arrow is now pointing in the opposite direction. And now, not only are we running from God, this is separation. It's the same. It's separation of a different kind, even a greater time. We're, we're, we're further from God, and we're growing in that. We're running from God. This is separation with the potential to grow But it's also separation that can be repented of. No repentance is required in that previous model. Did you guys notice that? But we need to turn back around. We need to face God now, and we need to grow then more into his likeness. James said that the reason we shouldn't cave into earthly desires and temptation is because sin will grow in us. If we keep eating sin, we are going to grow fatter in sin is the idea. After desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown gives birth to death. Sin grows in us. We're conditioning our hearts to say in the end, either Jesus, you are the one I have truly loved, or Jesus, you know what? I have only really ever loved myself. And so Luke 12 kind of ties all this together. Jesus pulls his disciples away from this giant crowd, and he's, he's talking about these eschatological events that are happening up in the heavens, and he's paralleling them to the, to the earthly events that are taking place. He's, and this, this, this dual conversation, what's happening in the heavens, what's happening on earth, it's really important in the context of this conversation. He says then in this that there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Right? This eschatological, what's going to happen in the day of judgment compared to what's happening right now, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. And so just think about this. Here's how it kind of comes together in my mind as I think about it. We will stand before God. Every single one of us will stand before God and hold, we will be held accountable for everything that we've ever said and done. Every thought and word and action will be laid out before us and exposed before God. And I think God's going to ask us one simple question. Is that true? Is what you've done and what you've said, what you thought, is that true? And the one who's relied on religion their whole life to fix this problem of guilt and shame, they're going to blame others. Even before God, they'll be like, yeah, well, God, you don't know the context. You know, you weren't there. God, you don't know how drunk I was. And so I can't really be blamed for it, right? Like, 
You don't know what he was doing. You don't know how they were influencing me. Yeah, but she did it first. You know, like I was just following the crowd. It's really not my fault. It's really not as bad as it looks, God. And we'll try to turn our attention to the good things that we've done. Yeah, but God, look at all the great things all the time I was charitable and served the poor and did all the great things. Don't those outweigh all the bad things that I did? And we'll say to God, no, this, this wasn't true of me. And you know when we say that, when we justify, when we blame shift, when we cover up, when we make excuses, we're just saying to God in the end, I, I am really who I love, God. It's my selfishness that is hardened within me. I've been conditioned my whole life to blame. I've been conditioned my whole life to not take ownership of my and take responsibility for the things I've done. In the end, I won't have the ability to say to God, yeah, you're who I truly love because I've really only ever loved myself. That permission to keep loving only ourselves is on into eternity is what the Bible calls hell. But if we simply acknowledge our sin as awful and as shaming as it is when it's laid out before us and fall on God's mercy by saying, yes, every single thing that you've seen and heard is true, God. Every single one will be admitted into paradise because Jesus has already taken the penalty. God will see us through his son, Jesus. This is a postmortem choice that will be offered to all people. And we are conditioning ourselves on this side of eternity as to answer that choice. Not everyone will hear of Jesus prior to dying, but once they meet their creator, they will be offered a salvation, I think. Some who have never heard of Jesus will gladly accept his gospel because he is who they had always loved, even though they had never heard of him. Some will deny him, even those who know Jesus and have and have claimed the name of Jesus, some will deny him because all they've ever done in life is justified and blame shift. Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He says, so many are going to come to me at the end and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do so many great things in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't we serve the poor? Lord, Lord, didn't we go to church every Sunday? Lord, Lord, didn't we do all the things that religion told us that we ought to do? Do you guys know what Jesus says to him? Away from me, you evildoers. That's odd, isn't it? Some even who think that they know Jesus have never conditioned their hearts to say in the end, God, you're who I truly love. And so here's the question that matters today. How is your heart being conditioned? That's it. That's, this, this is the question that really matters today. How is your heart being conditioned? The same question that is asked of the child in Yemen will be asked of you. When all is laid out before God and every deed made known and every secret thought exposed, how will you respond? You can go to the next slide, Ethan. How will you respond? Will a life of secret keeping and blame shifting and justifying and religion keeping convince you to point the finger of responsibility somewhere else? Will you try to convince God it wasn't really like that and he wasn't there and so, you know, he can't understand why you said what you did and why you said what you said and did what you did? Will you attempt to justify yourself and state, I am who I have only ever truly loved? Or will your life of constant reflection on the gospel and confession of your sin prompt you to say to God in the end, you're absolutely right. All this is true, and if it were not for Jesus Christ and his shed blood and defeat of sin by rising from the dead, I would be lost. But thanks be to God for salvation you freely offer me. Heavenly Father, I know the complexity of this. I, I, I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't know if I'm right in all this, Father. That's how I understand Scripture. It's how I understand your heart. 
At the end of the day, here's what we need to know. You're just, and I believe that. I think we can all agree with that. You're just, Father. We know that you are loving. And we know that you desire none to perish. And so I'm going to claim what I do know, Father, that you will do what you know to be right. And I'm going to rely on that. But I pray, Father, that we would just know that our hearts are being conditioned, that we should humble ourselves, Father, and to recognize that every time that I turn to religion, every time I I blame shift, every time I fail to take responsibility for the sin in my life, I am conditioning my heart to say in the end, I love me more than I love you. And so in humility, Father, humble us so that in the end, Father, and, and, and let us begin to practice, practice loving others, loving others, loving others, Compassion and kindness, grace, Father, let us practice here and now the life of Christ in us so that in the end it will flow with ease. Father, I know I'm a sinner. I, I know I've rejected you. I know I've abandoned. But by your grace and through the shed blood of your Son, I rely on what you have done for me. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. 11-11, not too bad. All right, friends. Thank you so much for being here today. Go love your neighbor well. Join us at around 1130, 6900 Emily Blister Road if you'd like to pray at the bridge with us. God bless you all.